<clears throat> Amen. Have you ever been charged of a wrongdoing that you did not commit? Kind of like the A-team. I don't know. They just came to mind. Have you ever been falsely accused of doing something or saying something that you just didn't do? Have you ever been in that position before? You know, I've, uh, I've shared parts of this story with you before. I just want to share it quickly this morning as we get started. Uh, but during my senior year in high school, we played a basketball team uh, over in Lakeview Fort Oglethorpe, which is in North Georgia. This was a high school team that, that just didn't have one but two seven-footers on it. Uh, and a fight broke out in the fourth quarter. And the benches cleared, and the student sections emptied out onto the floor, and it was a disaster. Uh, and the best part of the story is that there was a janitor in the building that night who single-handedly broke up the fight. There was a famous football player from that area named Ridgie White. Perhaps some of you have heard of him. He played at Howard High School in downtown Chattanooga, then went on to the University of Tennessee, where he was an All-American, and then he had a Hall of Fame professional career. But check this out. I found this out after the fact. This janitor was Ridgie White's dad, and he was unbelievable. I mean, he came in, and he broke up the fight. He pulled people off each other. If he had not been there, I would still be there right now, a part of that fight. Now, my high school coach was just doing the same thing. My high school coach was a big guy, and he was doing exactly the same thing. He just kind of ran into the melee, and he was pulling players off of each other and pulling fans off of one another. Well, the game was called, and I remember uh, on, our, on our way as we departed, I remember being told to put our heads down. We were on the school bus, and we had to put our heads down as we left the parking lot because there were all these students around the parking lot, and they were afraid that they'd start throwing bricks or rocks at our school bus as we left. Um, but we made it home, and the following day at practice, we had practice just immediately following school the next day, a police officer showed up to arrest my coach. Uh, one of the players on the opposing team had charged my coach with assault and battery. He was being falsely charged with a crime he did not commit. Of course, something like that, it, it made the headlines of the newspaper. It actually made the head, it, it made, had a little blurb in the USA Today. Um, and so it was kind of a big event in our neck of the woods. There was a big trial held. Uh, I was subpoenaed uh, as an eyewitness. I was a player that night. Um, and in case you're wondering, I didn't throw any punches. Um, but I testified in court uh, of my coach's innocence, and following the week-long trial, the jury concluded that my coach was, in fact, innocent of all the charges. Nevertheless, it made for a very memorable event uh, my senior year. Well, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen has been falsely accused. That's the context, just to give you a little kind of better understanding of what's happening here. He's been charged of crimes that he did not commit. And these are the very worst accusations that could be made of a Jew. 
If any one of these charges stuck, it could result in his being stoned. And so let's look back uh, just quickly here in Acts chapter 6 and verses 11 through 14. Here are the charges that are being made. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to all of us. And so here are the charges. The first charge is that Stephen speaks words of blasphemy against God. Now, uh, this is the third uh, lesson that, we, that we've spent together looking at this sermon. And in that first lesson, we looked in that f- the very first part of this sermon in verses 2 through 16 of chapter 7. Stephen there refers to God with a very special title used only by David in the Psalms. He calls God in verse 2, the God of glory. And Stephen says that the story of Israel is about a people being called to worship the God of glory. So he's not, he's not speaking words of blasphemy against God with his sermon. Instead, this entire sermon, he's actually calling, the, calling Israel back to truly worship the God of glory. The second charge is that Stephen speaks words of blasphemy against Moses and against the law. Now, we looked at the second part of his sermon last week, verses 17 through 43, kind of the heart of Stephen's sermon, and it's all about Moses. Uh, he's, he's not speaking words of blasphemy against Moses. He obviously has a tremendous respect for Moses. He says nothing in any way that's disparaging of Moses or the law. However, we did learn that Stephen tells the story of Moses very differently than the teachers. He tells the story of Moses in order to point them to Jesus, in order to point them to one like him who will be their rescuer and their reconciler and their ruler. And then the third charge is that Stephen never stops speaking against this holy place, the temple. And that's the charge that we're going to look at today. He turns his attention to addressing uh, this charge in the final verses of his sermon. Now, Stephen does have some pretty strong things to say concerning the temple, but he does not speak against the temple per se. Instead, he speaks against their understanding of the presence of God in relation to the temple. You see, they had grown to misunderstand the relationship between God and the temple. And so, Uh, Stephen here reminds them of these three truths about the presence of God. And that's my outline this morning, are these three truths here in these last verses of his sermon that Stephen reminds them about the presence of God. One, the presence of God has never been confined to a place. Two, the presence of God cannot be contained in a place. And then three, the presence of God must not be conformed into a place. 
And so we're going to look at those three truths here uh, in, with the lesson this morning. First, the presence of God has never been confined to a place. If you look at his sermon, you can go all the way back to uh, his telling of the story beginning in verse 2. You see in the way that uh, Stephen tells the story that the presence of God has shown up all over the place. In verse 2, God appeared to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. In verse 9, the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him there in Egypt and rescued him from all his troubles. In verse 30, God appeared to Moses in the desert near Mount Sinai in the flames of a burning bush. In verse 38, God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai where he received the law. In verse 44, God appeared to Moses again in the desert to direct him to build the tabernacle. Now, what do all these appearances have in common? There's no temple. They've all occurred outside of the temple. And the clear implication is that the presence of God has never been confined to one place. In fact, one could even argue from Israel's history that if you had to just pick one place, you'd pick Mount Sinai. But that's not the point. The point is that God has never been confined to a place. It makes me think of the words of David in Psalm 139. There David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. The presence of God has never been confined to a place. You know, Jesus, when he gave his followers the Great Commission, as we call it there in Matthew chapter 28, and he commanded them to go to go and and to share the good news, to go and to teach and to make disciples of all nations. And he gives that wonderful line there at at the very end of his commission. He says, surely I'm with you always to the very ends of the age. The presence of God has never been confined to a place. I would think this would have to be an encouraging message to the church at this point. Because what's going to happen at the end of chapter 7, at Stephen's death, is that the church will have to leave Jerusalem immediately. You see, up until this point, they've remained in Jerusalem. They've taught in the temple, in homes, but they've been in Jerusalem. And because of the, of the stoning of Stephen, they're, they're, they're going to be scattered. And I think this would have to be encouraging to them as they, they're scattered to, throughout Judea and throughout Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that the presence of God has never been confined to a place. And then second, the second truth 
that Stephen's emphasizing with this message is that the presence of God cannot be contained in a place. Stephen says it as clearly as he possibly can in verse 48. That's the verse if you want to underline or highlight one here in this message. Here's Here's what Stephen says. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by man. Literally, what he's saying is that it makes no sense for the Most High God, this is, a, this is another unique name used by Stephen to refer to God, similar to the God of glory. It's this, it's this name to refer to his majesty, to his transcendence, to his sovereignty. And it just does not make sense for the Most High to inhabit or dwell in a house made by man. And to back up his point with Scripture, he quotes Isaiah chapter 66. As the prophet says in verse 49, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You see, according to Isaiah's imagery, the earth is but the footstool for the Most High. So exactly what kind of home is man going to provide for God on his footstool? Listen, I like propping my feet up on my footstool as much as the next guy. But it doesn't make any sense for me to live on my footstool. Guess what? I brought my footstool for you. Huh? Maybe you saw this back there or wondering what that was. Check it out. We've got his and hers at the house. This one might be yours, Karen. But... uh. This is a great footstool. It's not too heavy. You know, you can take it around the different rooms. I use it. I use this footstool every morning. Every morning, my quiet time with the Lord, a cup of coffee, sit down for a few minutes, put up my feet on the footstool. But it makes no sense for me to dwell or inhabit this footstool, right? Let me show you. Like, what if, what if I wanted to take a nap? Now, why would I try to take a nap on this footstool? Would that make sense? Let's, let's see if it does. Just for fun. I know the folks at home, the folks at home won't be able to experience this. But, but this is Barrett, just for illustration purposes, trying to inhabit and dwell and take a nap on my footstool. And the point is this. This footstool cannot contain me, let alone the God of glory, let alone the Most High God. I brought my communion cup up here, and uh, just another illustration that came to my mind there is, it'd be kind of like... Uh, if afterwards here, we all got in my car and drove up to Niagara Falls. And um, 
just all got in one of those little boats, you know, where you kind of go out under the falls, and they take you right up there, kind of next to the falls. And if we tried, we all like, took our communion cups that we just used with us, and we got up there next to the falls, and we tried to catch the entire falls in this cup. It's not possible. This is what Isaiah is saying. You can't contain the presence of God in a place. If you recall, it was also Isaiah who saw a vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. There he wrote, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that word that's translated train can also be translated as the hem or the stitch of his robe. So literally, this verse can read that, a, that just a stitch of his robe filled the temple. Think about that. You can look at, that, look at a stitch on the inside of your shirt. And Isaiah saying, that's what filled the entirety of the temple, a stitch of his robe. At least that makes better sense. All that can be contained in a place is a stitch of the robe of the presence of God. Even the one who constructed the temple, Solomon, knew that the presence of God could not be contained in such a place. In his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon prayed, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I built? In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul, while preaching in Athens, makes the same point that Stephen does when he preached, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. The presence of the Most High cannot be contained in a place. And then third, the presence of God must not be conformed into a place. So it cannot be confined to a place, cannot be contained in a place, and it must not be conformed into a place. Let me ask you a question this morning. If you go into a store and you pick up an item there and it has a little tag on it that says handmade, what does that mean to you? When something's handmade or handcrafted, what does that mean? Is it better quality? Is it worse quality? Is it more expensive, less expensive? I guess it does depend on who makes it, right? But typically, when something is handmade, it's of better quality. It's more expensive. Now, when you make something in the kitchen, we don't use the term handmade. Instead, we'll say homemade, but it has the same meaning. And if I have a choice between two desserts, and one's homemade and the other one is store-bought, 
even if it was purchased from Trader Joe's. I'm still, I'm going to pick the one that's homemade, the one that's handmade. And here's my point. In our context today, in our language, handcrafted, handmade means a better quality. It means a nicer item. But in this context, in the world of Israel and their language back then, saying something was handmade, saying something was made by hands had a very negative connotation. In fact, it was considered a derogatory statement. If something was made by man, it meant that God had not made it or God had not commanded it to be made. And when the phrase was implied to something involving worship, then it was referring to idolatry because idols are handmade and not God-made. And the point that Stephen is making here is that Israel had turned the man-made temple into an idol. We find key parallel phrases in verse 41 and verse 48. In verse 41, Stephen says that the Israelites, he's recalling the story of the golden calf. And there he says that the Israelites made an idol shaped like a calf, and they offered sacrifices to it, and they rejoiced in the works of their hands. And then in verse 48, again, Stephen says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. And here's the connection. They had conformed the presence of God into the shape of the temple. Just like their ancestors had conformed the presence of God into the shape of a golden calf and rejoiced in the works of their hands, they had conformed the presence of God into the shape of a temple. And they rejoiced in the work of their hands. They found their fulfillment They found their hope. They found their meaning from what they had built with their own hands. And they'd made the temple into an idol. Instead of it just being their place of worship, it became their object of worship. It was all very religious, and they used all the right language, but they had conformed the presence of God into the shape of the temple. Yet the presence of God must not be conformed into a place. The presence of God has never been confined. The presence of God cannot be contained. And the presence of God must not be conformed. You see, Stephen was was not speaking against the temple per se, Instead, he was speaking against their understanding of the presence of God in relation to the temple. And I think that we need to hear the words of Stephen today and let his words challenge our understanding of the presence of God today. How might we do this today? How might we do the very same things that they did then? Because I think if we're honest, we can struggle with some of the same misunderstandings. Do we confine or contain or or conform the presence of God today? 
I think it's a, it's a great question worth our consideration. I thought quite a bit about it this week, and I just want to share some of what I've thought about it. And I know there's much more. Hopefully, this will just spur some conversation on in your life groups and uh, in your lives personally. But I think we try to confine the presence of God when we try to put God into a certain denominational box. When we, when, we, when we only let God work or move in certain ways that we're comfortable with or in certain ways that we're used to and only among certain people and places, You know, when we try to fit God nice and neatly inside the four walls of a building, I think we can confine the presence of God. Or I think we try to contain God when we make him so small and so insignificant and so inadequate that he loses his transcendence and his holiness and his sovereignty. When we're more about God being our homeboy than our holy God, and he he loses his transcendence and his holiness and his sovereignty, and we try to contain God, or we try to conform God. When we, when we make God into our own image, instead of allowing God to make us into his image, you know, when, when we shape God to fit our lifestyle, when we shape God to fit our ways and our desires, when we allow something else to have the influence and to command the devotion which should only belong to the Most High God, then we try to conform God. Like I said, I think there's... There's many other ways that we can think about that, and I encourage you to, to think upon that. But the, uh, this is what I know to be true from Stephen's lesson today. The presence of God has never been confined, cannot be contained, and must not be conformed. J.B. Phillips, uh, perhaps you've, you've heard of him. He wrote an important little book back in the 50s. I um, encourage you to read it, but it's called Your God is Too Small. It's an apologetic uh, that's written for skeptics and believers alike about how to find a meaningful understanding of God. I want you to listen to this. Perhaps you've not thought about it like this before, and I think it's really helpful. Here's what J.B. wrote. He said, many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. This is not because they're particularly wicked or selfish. 
or as the old-fashioned would say, godless. But it's because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough to account for life. A God big enough to fit in with the new scientific age. And a God big enough to command their highest admiration and respect and consequently their willing cooperation. And unfortunately, he writes, in response to this situation, the church acts and seems as though it has captured and tamed and trained to their own liking something that's really far too big ever to be forced into little man-made boxes with neat labels on them. presence of God has never been confined, cannot be contained, and must not be conformed. We can never have too big an understanding of God. We need to recover a sense of awe and wonder for the presence of God in our world. We must allow the presence of God to give us a reverence for God. Great are you, Lord, worthy of our praise, holy and true. Great are you, Lord, most holy Lord. Let me conclude with this invitation, and then we're going to worship We're going to worship God. This should blow your minds after this emphasis. I I hope this kind of blows your mind a little bit. But here's what Scripture teaches, and here's what I've experienced. We can know this great, holy, true, worthy God whose presence has never been confined and cannot be contained and must not be conformed, we can know this God because he became a person named Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the only reason. We can know God through Jesus of Nazareth. The Hebrew writer said that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Paul wrote, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And so we can know this God who's never been confined and cannot be contained and must not be conformed. We can know him because he became man and came to the earth. Jesus of Nazareth, and he died for your sins. And he rose again on the third day to conquer death, to claim victory for eternity over death. And he ascended into the heavens where he is at the right hand of the Father to give 
his very presence, the presence of God, to give the presence through the promised Holy Spirit to all who turn to him and are baptized into his name. It's something I wouldn't believe if it was not in here. But it is because it's too glorious. So this morning, if you're here and you have, have, have never come, you can know him as big and as, as immense as marvelous and magnificent, we're going to sing just here in a minute about how great and holy that he is, and he is. We can't confine him. We need to stop trying to conform him, to look like us. We need to stop trying to confine him into our little boxes. You can know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Won't you come to him today as we stand together and